Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 1 to 13. We talk about Paul's invitation to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who gave up equality with God to be born in human form and die on the cross. We ask what it might mean to give up our own privileges, to divest ourselves of those things that give us higher status in order to be present with the disinherited and the marginalized. We wrestle with what it means to look to the interests of others before our own and how that can be both a wonderful and dangerous idea. We reflect on Christ's ultimate exaltation and the promise of salvation. Is it really being humble if you only do it to gain a heavenly reward? Or is there more to it than that? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's good to see you this week. It is good to see you, too. What's happening in your world? I was contemplating how to respond to that question and whether to respond with frippery. Is that a word? I think I, it I is. do not know that word, but I love it. Like, just frippery? like, to- I don't, it's like, just, you know, silliness, because that yeah. is in my world, or like, real, like, gravitas because that's also in my world and i i went i'm gonna go with the silliness i think so dr google tells me that frippery which is a word i have not known until just now means showy or unnecessary ornament in architecture dress or language (laughs) okay okay good well you can decide whether this counts as frippery okay the other day i was in line at the post office of all places and they had some greeting cards for sale. So I was looking at the greeting cards to entertain myself, and there was one that I came so, it was a birthday card that I came so close to buying you, even though it is not your birthday. Yeah. I do uh, have a birthday, though. You do, and you'll have another. I will. So, I <laughs> so can I tell you what this card was? Yeah, please do. It was two, you'll be shocked, worms, two worms. And one of them was playing a birthday song on the guitar, for the other one. And so there was like, you know, all these music notes around the guitar yeah. worm, you know, with like, happy birthday, blah, this blah, blah. This is amazing. And the other worm was saying, how are you holding that guitar? <laughs> 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 and it just made me laugh out loud. That, but, I love that. Very but then similar. it had a really stupid and sincere message inside. And I was oh. like, oh, you ruined it. Just yeah. leave the, just leave that picture, and then you can write whatever you want on the inside. So I don't know. Maybe I'll go back and buy it, but it won't be a surprise now. Yeah. It was so good. It's hard to find worm-themed frippery. Yeah, this has now got me thinking about the Bible Worm logo and the fact that that book is standing upright, and, like, how's that guy holding? How is he holding? Or she. I mean, I don't know the gender of the worm. I know. I it had not occurred to me until just now to consider the gender. Aren't worms sort of hermaphroditic anyway? Some- I have no information about that. I know earthworms are, but I don't know. I don't even know what kind of worm the Bible worm is. Like, I don't think Bible worm is like his species, right? No, I don't think so. It's like he's a worm that has interest in the Bible. He's a worm, yes. And he's sort of in the caterpillar genre, right? Like, 
Like a, a little green worm. Like yeah. A, like it's like a, an inchworm. An inchworm. That's yeah, the not worm. like an earthworm. <laughs> Do you remember when we first started sketching logos and one of the first logos we had, the Bible worm, was an earthworm? <laughs> we were like, ew. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not, we need a prettier worm than that. Work. Yeah, so now we have sort of a cute little, he's, like, he's pretty cute. He's very surprised. Or she, they, they are very surprised looking about how interesting the Bible is. How are you holding that Bible, Bible worm? How are you? I mean, I would like to bless us all with open eyes to see the miracles in the world such as that. How yeah. is that worm holding that Bible? Yeah. It's a miracle. That was lovely. Well, this text in Philippians 2 is going to open our eyes to wonderful things that we don't know the answers to also as well. <laughs> <laughs> also as well. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Yeah. The Christ hymn itself, which we'll talk more about that name, Christ hymn, when we get there, begins in verse Mm 6. So the first part is sort of Paul's invitation to them to think about Jesus in a particular kind of way. So I'll start out by reading that in verses uh, 1 through, I think I'll read 1 through 4. That's what we'll start out with. I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united, and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Okay, Amy, so what seems to be happening in this passage is that Paul is sort of inviting the Philippians to have some, to live like life in a certain kind of way, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But he grounds that kind of live your life this way in this kind of beginning statement about if there is encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, sharing in the spirit, sympathy. If that is true, then I'm going to offer you this other kind of way of life. So if you think about this if part here at the beginning, encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, sharing in spirit, sympathy, do you make anything out of those ideas in particular? That's such a good question because this really is sort of posited as a, if you accept these things, if we start from this common place, then there's sort of a, a natural outgrowth and yeah. the natural outgrowth is is what Paul is then asking of them, which is not a small ask, and we'll we'll talk about that as we get to it. But I think one thing that I notice about the ifs is they seem very, uh, for lack of a better word, emotional, mm. like encouragement, consolation from love. My translation's a little different from yours. Yeah, and that's, those differences are interesting too. Sharing in the spirit, compassion and sympathy. I think I feel a little bit of contrast with the next part that, you know, again, we'll get to in a minute that has more focus on at least the word mind. You know, that seems more yeah. about not not to totally like bifurcate people, but I I feel like there's a the first part is more like a a, a your emo, your emotional state, what draws you emotionally and spiritually. And if you're already drawn into that, then then try to take this next step with your mind. Yeah, no, I, I like the way you set that up a lot, Amy. And 
I was reminding me of a conversation that we had last time about Philippians 1, 8, where Paul mm. says, God is my witness that I feel affection for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. Yeah. And we talked about that word compassion, like it's in your gut. And then we talked about the fact that somehow Paul is loving them with the compassion that belongs to Christ. Yeah. So he's like feeling Christ's feelings and yeah. living them out. That's such a great connection. So to me, I kind of read this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, sharing in the spirit. You know, I, I'm wondering if there's a connection there where mm-hmm. like this is the way when we are all connected together in Christ, like we experience this sort of common emotionality or this common. I mean, emotionality is a great, I think is the right way. Encouragement, comfort, sharing, sympathy. I love that. You know, and I, uh, as a person who likes thinking thoughts and putting things into words and all that stuff, I think it is it is easy to think that the best way into any sort of shared shared ground is through intellectual understanding. And that's really not how this is, not how Paul goes about it. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. So he's, he's, he's going to talk about that as you're raised, as you're mentioning, he's going to, he's going to talk about that in a minute as an invitation, but he starts out by saying when we are in Christ, that in Christ there in the CEB, if there's any encouragement in Christ, Mm -hmm. like I, the way that I read that is in being together in Christ, like not, does Jesus have any encouragement? Like, do you and like believing in Jesus encourage you? It's, if we are together in Christ, then is there encouragement? Is there comfort? Is there sharing? Like there is a unity that's expressed in that idea of being in Christ. Mm-hmm. Not just sort of the idea like Christ himself has sympathy or comfort or something like that. I don't come grasping after something I can't quite say. Am I understanding you correctly that that you're right? Yes, yeah, so you're not just talking about attributes of Christ, Right. right? And it sounds like maybe you're not just talking about how those things might exist within the individual, but that the community together when they are, that phrase in Christ, it's like what draws the community together is to be in Christ. And so we're really talking about characteristics of a community that's, that's drawn together under that umbrella. Yeah. Thank you for saying it that way. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And we talked a little bit in our first conversation about Philippians about how there is an individual way of reading this letter and there's also this communal letter. And I confessed or acknowledged at least at that point that I tend to read everything in this communitarian way. Yeah. And that's exactly the way I read it. If all, if you as a community are together in Christ and then in that way of life, there are these things, then here comes this other set of values. Yeah. And I just... I love that the the sort of in between between the if and the then in some ways. Yeah. Paul puts himself. Yeah. Like if if all these things, then in in the NRSV translation, make my joy complete. Yeah. Like that it, it it's very personal. Like this is not an abstract ask. This is really yeah. based on his relationship with that community and his idea that the community feels the same kind of, you know, longing compassion for him that he feels for them. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And so there's this sense of, so the if then for Paul is an, of, 
of course the if and therefore, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So you don't really you don't really have an if there. Like if you say no, like is there any right. encouragement in Christ? If you say no, then Paul's like, well, like maybe yeah. you should go down the street to some other <laughs> community. Yeah, right. Right. Let's talk about a, a little bit about this then in verse two. In the CEB, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united, agreeing with each other. I'm just curious about what you think about about that list. That's Not a big ask. It's a big ask. It's. I mean, <laughs> I know this is not really what Paul means, but at least in 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 modern sensibilities, I can you imagine driving by a church with one of those billboards that says like "We are of one mind, join us." That doesn't yeah. sound. That doesn't sound like no, a that good advertisement. It sounds super <laughs> no, creepy. It yeah, it sounds super creepy. So I'm yeah. going to assume that's not what Paul's going for. It's a little weird to me how much the idea of having the same love yeah. sounds good to me. Yeah. And the idea of like agreeing with each other all the time sounds dishonest to me. Yeah. Yeah. Can you help me with that? No, I think that's really important. Because I mean, I, I take what you're I take your meaning to be that it's not actually possible that you would just naturally agree all the time. And so to appear as though you're agreeing all the time is to actually be glossing over difference. Yeah. Like you kind of got to fake it. Yeah. Or else you've got to be so swayed by some other external force that you, like I'm thinking about, you know, like cults of personality kind of thing where- Everybody is yeah. sort of brainwashed into agreeing. Right, they where think, everyone has- They think they yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you about that because I agree with you about everything. Yeah, clearly. We're of one Can you imagine how Bible worm, boring Bible worm would be <laughs> if we agreed about everything? <laughs> you think that's yeah. right, Amy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think your point about the, you know, the charismatic leader- you know, who sort of tells everyone, says something and everyone just kind of falls in line with them. That's a helpful example to me because if we take out the charismatic leader and put instead uh, priorities or, I don't know, like I I think having some, having ideals, like agreeing on ideals and maybe a, a way to orient oneself towards the world that totally makes sense to me. And I wonder if that's what Paul is saying or yeah. if I'm just trying to sort of soft pedal Paul here to make him feel better to me as a modern liberal Jew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The word that's used there in both cases uh, where NRSV has mind is a verb, freneo, which can mean to think the same thing. Uh, or to have the same opinion, but it can also mean to have the same attitude or the Mm. same orientation, Mm. which I take to be sort of your second, like what you were hoping maybe that it might mean. So we agree on the sort of fundamental principles about what we care about, what we think is important, but exactly how that plays out in the details, Mm -hmm. we might have legitimate disagreements about that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the the set of things that we think are important, Mm -hmm. we're we're in unity about that. Mm-hmm. I think yes. that's the right way to read that. I, that is, I like that. 
I like that reading, selfishly. And then it fits more with having the same love and being united, right? Like, let's I lift each so. other up. Let's have the same attitudes about things. We, we have a core mission statement. Exactly what that core mission statement is, I don't think is clear at this moment in Paul's text, but it, maybe it will become clearer or at least more interestingly unclear yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as we go. So Paul then goes on in verse three to sort of begin to sketch out what he means, I think, by this, by this attitude. And I mean, this is about being, no, don't be selfish, be humble. And then the line, think of others as better than yourselves. Mm. Thinking, and then in the next line, watch out what is better for others. I'm just, I'm really interested in your, like, to me, this seems like a pot, like a real positive way of living your life. And also kind of a maybe a dangerous one. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious what you think about that. I really, I feel both of those things really strongly here. I mean, I think there truly, genuinely is some kind of magic that happens when we elevate someone else's needs if everyone really does it. Yeah. Like almost as though if if we have a certain amount of you know, energy we can devote to care for ourselves or for others. It's like if we devote it to someone else and then they devote to someone else and they devote to someone else, it's like there's this like alchemy where ultimately more more care is produced. Like God gets brought into the center of it because it crosses these like personal boundaries. I do genuinely think that is magic. And I mean, we have spoken before about other passages, I think, in the New Testament, maybe in the Hebrew Bible too, that we need to be careful with the idea that humility means making yourself small. Because some people need, need to hear that message, truly. And some people really do not need to hear that message. They have gotten that message loud and clear (laughs) from whatever their life situation is or whatever their, you know, disposition is. And it can be very dangerous to say, care not about yourself and other people are, <laughs> other people are better than you. That can be a, a really dangerous thing to say to someone. Yeah. It, it just, it depends. I mean, I think there's a lot in, there's a lot in the biblical text that assumes that the problem, the dominant problem is sort of hubris and selfishness. Yeah. And that is a real problem in humanity, but it's not the the only problem or it's not the main problem that everybody faces. What you're talking about reminds me a great deal of a lot of feminist and womanist Mm -hmm. theologies that have been written in the last, you know, 50 years or so, which say exactly that. Like the Bible tends to assume, and a lot of Christian theology has historically tended to assume that human sinfulness and hubris are kind of the same. And that that is true for certain parts Mm -hmm. of humankind, but not for everyone. And I I think that's, you know, sort of making yourself too small is also a form of human sinfulness. It sounds a little strong, but it is a a manifestation of the brokenness of humanity Mm -hmm. when people feel forced to make themselves smaller than they really are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly right to hold those in tension. Yeah. I think what Paul is after here. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I think the most positive <laughs> <laughs> the most positive reading of Paul is that he is not thinking of humility as lowering yourself, 
but he, like he, he's not thinking about make yourself less than you are, but he is thinking about the opposite of that, which is lift other people up to mm-hmm. the best they can be. Yes. No, I think that's right. I think it's, it's sort of a shift from this like competitive mindset to like we, the, the goal that sort of of one mind, right. Is, is that we want, we want to lift everyone up. I was listening to at a Freakonomics episode last night, just a podcast, and they were talking about different models for colleges and universities and how some of the sort of quote-unquote top-tier universities are very competitive, and the whole sort of goal seems to weed people out of the hardest majors, right? All the prerequisites leading into it are to— yeah to only the best survive. And then there are other schools, and in this context they were talking about historically black colleges and universities who have as their mission to get, they want everyone to succeed. It is not, they're not trying to get anyone out. They're trying to lift everyone up. And it's just a totally different mission. Yes. No, I love that, Amy. And it reminds me of things that Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in which his focus is on uh, lifting up the weakest members of the community. Yeah. His point is nobody should be weaker or stronger in the community. And so if people are viewed as weaker or stronger, we need to correct that yeah. and lift up those who um, might be viewed as weaker. And so I think that really is the, the mission that Paul has in mind is that everybody ought to be able to, live at full strength and recognize the full, their full strength and that the wholeness of the community is everybody being on, on equal foot is not exactly what I mean, but everybody being able to be them, their full self. Right. 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 Which by the way, I think is also the view of Deuteronomy. Like I don't think Paul is doing mm-hmm. anything particularly what he's doing. That's different is he's, con- he's going to, in just a second, connect this to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But the attitude that he's, God is very familiar from his Jewish background, at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we just, in my Torah study this week, we had a somewhat similar conversation just about the teaching. It's not really competitive, but love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And someone in the group asked, what if you don't love yourself? Yeah. And I just feel like that's that was not a question on the minds of biblical yeah. writers, but yeah. it is a question for us to address now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So then in the next section of this text, which is, really the core of this text, Paul tries to explain what he means by connecting this to, like, you live this way, in verse 5, by having the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Then what we get in verses 6 through 11 is often called the Christ hymn. There is some question about where this came from. Some mm-hmm. people think that Paul is is quoting a hymn or a sort of an early form of a creed that pre-existed him and was known in Christian communities. And he's drawing it in and using it as an, to exemplify his point. Yeah. If Paul is doing that with an earlier form, then, th- then this hymn is really interesting of its own accord because it's a pre-Pauline statement of Christian belief. And Paul is writing at the latest in about 60. So if it's earlier than Paul, you know, it's we're really getting pretty close to the life of Christ. Yeah. Other people think that that Paul has composed this and it's sort of hymnic in its character. He's sort of shifted registers, but that it's there's nothing in it that is fundamentally different than Paul, although mm-hmm. the vocabulary is not particularly Pauline in some places. Mm-hmm. 
So some people think Paul has written this. Some people think Paul has adapted it. I think in either case, what's interesting is like what's going on in this little segment and then what does it have to do with what comes before and after? Anything you want to say about that idea of the, just the idea of the Christ hymn? I mean, it's in, I, I guess I had sort of come to it with the assumption that this is an, this is an earlier text that, yeah. that he's referring to just because it's, I mean, but you're right. I guess, I guess he could have composed it. It, it stands out as, as sort of elevated, as poetic, yeah. as, you know, kind of rhythmic. Like it stands yeah. apart from, from the rest of the text. So whether Paul wrote it or not, it seems like it needs to be read a little bit differently Yeah. than just like regular discourse that you would find in a letter. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of like the Christ hymn is to Philippians as the prologue is to the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Maybe John wrote it, maybe not, but it sort of frames the whole thing. I think that's true here, true here as well. So what I think we'll do is read the Christ hymn, and I'm going to split it in two. It sort of has a downward movement, like it goes from sort of equality with God down. Mm. And then it goes from the down back, like the exaltation. So the whole thing is 6 to 11, but I'm going to read it as 6 through 8 and then 9 through 11. Okay. And I think what what I want to try to do with it is just read it for itself without thinking like, what is Paul trying to do with it in this Mm -hmm. context? But like, let's just Mm -hmm. talk about it and then think about what does it mean in this context? So beginning in verse 5, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's kind of the the center of the Christ hymn is even death on a cross. It leaves you in this kind of, like if you're thinking about the movement of the gospel, like it leaves us on right after the crucifixion when Jesus is in the tomb. Yeah. I think what I want to ask you is just where in this sort of first movement of the Christ hymn did you either get drawn in or puzzled by what was going on? I mean, some of it was just, I feel like these, these like simple, simple-minded questions, I guess, in some ways. But I, I mean, I hadn't really thought of Jesus as like an entity separate from God that was equal to God that made a decision to come to earth yeah. and inhabit a human body. And it seems like that's what this is saying. That feels really that feels really different than than the story that had been in my mind that this was like an emanation from God or that sent from God or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the language there is really interesting. And I mean, it is fairly clear, I think, there are some people who will argue differently, but it's fairly clear to me that this has a, a view of Jesus, as Jesus Christ, as pre-existent prior to the incarnation in heaven in some way or another with God, which mm-hmm. I think would remind us of the prologue to John. The beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God which is also trying to make that distinction, right? 
you can't be if, if it's just yeah. you like i would like i'm with me like that's weird so there's like some distinction between the two and yet there's an equation between the two in the gospel of john and maybe something similar is happening here he's in the form but he doesn't want to exploit i mean that's even that language there in the ceb he did not consider yeah. being equal with god something to exploit yeah you know the christian church is going to struggle for a couple of hundred years and maybe we still struggle today i don't know in understanding the relationship between Jesus and God, the Father, however you want to, uh, when you get into Trinitarian language, it starts getting slippery real quick. Yeah, yeah. But this idea, like, are they the same? Are they different? Like that's, yeah. there's a big struggle going on there. And I don't think Paul in 60 or so CE has figured out all the language, but you can see him struggling after what becomes the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, that they are somehow the same, but they are somehow also yeah. distinct. And that yeah. may be as yeah. far as we're able to get with that in the current yeah. context. Yeah. Whatever he means by that, what that what that Jesus, pre-existent Jesus does is he decides being equal with God is not something to be exploited. And so he empties himself. There is so much, and just that like language about exploiting equality with God and instead emptying oneself, like, yeah. I mean... There's a lot one one can yeah. say about that. What, where did you start thinking about that? I got really, I don't know, sort of caught on my translation also has the word exploited, and thinking like, what is it? What is it? What does it mean? Yeah. Like in this context, like what would exploiting your equality with God yeah. look like? And the best I could come up with, maybe this is a really it, it seems pretty it seems pretty small what they're talking about here, but like did not use that power, the power of God to protect himself from suffering in any way or increase his own pleasure yeah. or joy in any way. Yeah. It was really, you know, it says, I don't even know what the emptied himself is such a oh, it's just beautiful and I don't quite know what to I don't quite know what to do with it. Like I reading this, I picture sort of like opening your hands and not not grasping yeah. onto the things that you have and not grasping yeah. onto the the power you've been given. But emptying yourself is is even beyond yeah. that. It's not just emptying your hands. It's I don't know. I don't I don't have any nice words. I don't have any nice words to put around it, but it's Do you have any No, nice that words? was real. I was just thinking how beautiful <laughs> that was, Amy. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know that those are yeah, I don't have, know if I have any better words than that at all. I think what you're saying there makes a lot of sense. And the, the things that you've said about protecting oneself from pain, preserving one's own power, like the, those kinds of things. The other thing that comes to my mind about exploiting equality with God would be seeking the praise of people, like people praise God. And so if you're mm -hmm. equal with God, mm -hmm. then you can get praise for yourself. You can get glory for yourself. And that... So that decision to not do that, I think for me, all of those things are in play about he chooses not to protect himself from suffering. He chooses not to yeah. gather glory and praise for himself. He chooses not to have power for the sake of having power. But I love what you've added there because I love I, that image of like holding it loosely, like with open hands mm -hmm. is one thing, but you're exactly right. That is not the end of what, Paul is saying here. It's not just Yeah, that. it's he he gave it up, like willingly 
poured it out. I don't, I don't need this stuff. Yeah. Just let it all, let it all go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When he gives it all away in verse seven, the language is he took the form of a slave and became like a human being, which is an interesting sort of the, the, the slave status, the human being status. Yeah. How do you think about the status here from God to human to slave to? I mean, what it's so interesting to me that it goes from God to, I don't know if slave and human are sort of in parallel here, that it's saying that to live in human, being born in human likeness is to take the form of a slave. Yeah. Or if there's that that's how I guess I'm reading it, which is a pretty profound statement that I I don't know, I hadn't thought about too much until you just held it up there. But So you mean by that you're thinking that human beings by our nature are slaves in some way? That's how I that's how I read mm-hmm. this. It's my translation says taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really useful way of reading that and to say then, you know, all these distinctions that we make as human beings about sort of different status of human being, I'm a, I'm a king, mm. you know, you're a peasant or whatever it is. Uh, Paul has kind of erased all of those here and said when he becomes a human being, he has the status of a slave. So human beings in the big picture are by our nature slaves. And I mean, we've talked about that a little bit previously. You you raise that fairly often as in the Hebrew Bible, the choices, you can be a slave to Pharaoh or you can be a slave to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know what to do with that, but but one way of sort of reading that is to say, you human being who think you are great or who desire to be greater than you are, really it's all the same. And your status relative to God is really low. Yeah, no, it's it's. I love bringing in that complicated idea from from the Hebrew Bible that you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to Pharaoh. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's no option to be, you know, powerful yeah. unto yourself. So, so that makes me think maybe it's more just sort of the human condition is you got you're enslaved to something. Yeah. It's either God or it's Pharaoh or it's some other king or it's yeah you know, any number of things that we could say we are enslaved to in the modern world. And maybe in this context, you've said a couple of times that I think that last phrase you're using, enslaved to any number of things in the modern world. <laughs> I just throw around. I mean, I, what you're talking about is the power of sin and death. Like that's that's not the language that probably is you're yeah, going to use. Yeah, the language in my head. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's what, that's the way Paul thinks about sin and death, right? Is that... Mm. Death rules in this world and that sin has corrupted everything. Some mm-hmm. some forms of Christianity think of sin as like, ooh, I'm a bad person. But Paul thinks like sin is a powerful force and it manifests itself in the world in all kinds of systemic ways. And so then you think like, okay, well, what are the manifestations of sin in the in the contemporary world? And one might say greed or sexism or racism yeah. or yeah. colonialism or capitalism, whatever it might be, yeah. these are powerful forces, any number of things that is all under the rubric of sin. 
So in my mind, this might be a better way, or at least, a, I don't know, it's a more accessible way of thinking about this than you're either going to be enslaved to this or that, is to say the mm-hmm. nature of being human is to be enslaved to this, all of these things that we can call yeah. sin. And in order for Jesus to become human, he had to become enslaved to all of those things. And you, fellow human, are also enslaved to all of those things. No, I really, I really like where you've taken that reading. I think that's really, really helpful. Now then Paul talks about, so he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, which seems like enough to me. Like that's pretty obedient. <laughs> but then he doubles down, death on a cross. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts yeah. about why, why, I mean, that's, why could he not have said it differently? It's such a bad question. But maybe the better way to ask it is what does death on a cross get? that just saying death does not get? That's ah, such a good question. And I love that you pointed out when we started this that the death on the cross is at the center of, of the hymn. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was just the enormity of the human suffering and humiliation of the body, yeah. mm-hmm. which it's, it's, it seems like it's a little hard. It's a little hard to beat. Yeah. <laughs> crucifixion in that regard. Um, And as you were talking now about, you know, sort of sin and the forces of sin and death in the world as they manifest in empires and the systems of empires and all of that, that's sort of coming into my mind also is the, the, like dying at the hand of the empire publicly in so much physical pain. That, that that's pretty is pretty bad. That's a that's a as I would say, it's like, you know, sometimes you say like someone died but they had a good death. This is a pretty bad yeah. death. It's pretty bad. And I think that's exactly right, Amy. And I, I love both of those ideas. One of the ways that I talk about this sometimes with my friends at Mercy Church, which I haven't talked about Mercy Church a lot <laughs> since the pandemic began, but Mercy Church is one of my pastoral contexts in which most of the people who are mm-hmm. who are there are homeless. And one of the things that that we talk about there, one of the things that they see in this text is Jesus, I mean, this is kind of the worst death you could die. Yeah. In, at least in, you know, in, in the Roman context, he's been executed by the state for a crime he did not commit in the most public, painful, humiliating way possible. Yeah. And so one of the things that they talk about, which is really useful to me, is Jesus he didn't be he didn't live human life in like the cushiest way possible. He lived it in the worst mm-hmm. imaginable way possible. And so if you yourself are kind of going through it, whether that's personally or, you know, economically or whatever, like if you're a person who is also yeah. suffering, Jesus knows what that's like. And therefore God is going to know what that's like to to be human in the most degrading, painful possible way. So if Jesus came and was a, you know, like a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and died, then you think he didn't really get what my life is like. But when you're like, this is how he died, then you think whoever I am, he he gets that. Yeah. I also like where you went with um, death on a cross, execution by the state. You know, the the powers of the world are going to get you they do, and Jesus Jesus understands that, right? That these are the power of death in the world, both actual death and then also sort of systemic death. Yeah. 
that's just the nature of being human, and Jesus was not immune to that either. The cross is at the center of this hymn, and I think the cross is also at the center of Christian faith, at least as Paul understands it, which is to say that's the thing. Like All Paul ever really says about Jesus is that he died on a cross and that he was resurrected. And he says, I came preaching Christ and him crucified. Like That's the thing. You can't leave it at the cross, but for Paul, the cross really is very much at the center. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurick, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now back to this week's podcast. With this hymn, then, this death on a cross is then followed by the sort of upward swing of the, of the poem, which begins with a therefore in verse 9. Therefore God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So there is a clear, like, I mean, that took a turn for the, for the better, I suppose. And Jesus ends up kind of back where he started, although maybe with an even more exalted status than he had previously. I'm just so interested how you think about that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like my, I feel like my thinking has already evolved from before we started having this conversation to now, which I guess often happens. But let me tell you first, like the notes I wrote for myself before before we started talking about this were that in some ways this here is here is Amy not understanding Christianity very well. It felt like it sort of ran at cross purposes to what I thought was the message of yeah. the text. Like instead of be of one mind because that's that's how you live in God's world yeah. and that's what's real and true. Like be of one mind because maybe later you will be super rewarded for yeah. it and exalted and worshiped. And like that to me is just, it's still playing directly yeah. into ego yeah. 
It's just saying you need to defer your gratification until after your life. Yeah. But it's all still about bringing honor to yourself yeah. through the lens of Jesus. Now, I think I've gone too far already, like bridging this text into the extent to which we are supposed to model ourselves on Jesus. But it just seems like deferred gratification. Yeah, no, you've done it in such a helpful way. And that is exactly the problem that I, I one of the problems that I see with this text as well. And can, I mean, this is exactly what, I mean, what Paul has said is have the same attitude that Jesus did. And here's what Jesus did. And so like those connections, like humble yourself now so you'll be exalted later is a, a legitimate reading of this passage. I think it is not the right reading, <laughs> but I think it is the, Great. I think it is the Good. way that this That's text good. lends itself. So I see, I mean, and Trinitarian theology complicates this a little bit. So I'm just going to be pre-Trinitarian, which is that <laughs> Christ didn't seek exaltation. He yeah. chose not to be exalted and yeah. gave it all up. And God then chose to exalt yeah. him yes. for that, which is God's free choice to do or not to do. If it was Jesus really wanted to be highly exalted, so he gave it all up. <laughs> and this is what <laughs> he had he to do it. to get there. That is yes, a very a different very hymn. Diff- I totally agree. I to- Yes, I totally agree. It's just hard then when that story becomes the example because it sounds it like does. a promise. Yeah, it does. And so many contemporary forms of Christianity are all about live your life this way. Why? So that this other thing, mm-hmm. so you will be exalted. I mean, that is, that is the way Christianity is in the water in, in North America, at least. I, th- I think in many, many uh, manifestations around the world. I think that's a mistaken reading of this. Um, I, I think what Paul is saying is humble yourself in the way that Christ humbled, your, humbled himself. And then in the way that Christ was exalted, so too, we hope for a, an exaltation. But it's not a do this so that that. It's a do this, and then we trust that God is going to do that other thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The, the nuances are pretty, pretty slim there. They are. Like, at, but, well, but as you were talking, I was thinking, like, if we are trying to discern God's will— then you could think of the story of Jesus as, you know, sort of we know this is God's will for what humans should do because look what look what happened. Yeah. Not so much this is what's going to happen for yeah. all of us. I, the other thing that was running through my head as I was, you know, running through this sort of critique was I was thinking back to those healing stories that we were reading. And, you know, I always have a hard time with the healing stories. But we talked a lot in John about, the idea that Jesus does the healings and seems to recognize that their humans really need signs and yeah. the healings are really powerful signs. And in order for Jesus to do the work that he needs to do, he needs to have people's attention. And this is how you get it. So like, whereas we might be super focused on the sign and that's not really the maybe the full point <laughs> of what's happening, that there's a recognition that like humans are humans and they need things. And I started wondering almost if there's a, I mean, there's little doubt to me that life on earth here together would be and will be better when we are willing to, you know, give up some of our uh, 
power or fear of losing power or, you know, when we direct ourselves to pay attention to others. And I guess I wonder if it's a little bit of like a, if there's some recognition that humans need a carrot, like they, this is a hard thing I'm asking you to do. And this, and I recognize that you need, you may need, you may need this. Maybe you don't need it, but I don't know. Does that, yeah. Does that, is that no, depressing? I, it's like a consolation prize to, <laughs> no, actually, prize. I really love that. I really like that. And, you know, one of the things that we, that we should say, uh, which I think frames that a little bit is that, you know, this is not a promise that any Christian believer is going to be exalted. This is yeah, an acknowledgement right. that Jesus was yes. lift, Jesus was raised up. And so it does not say that if you give yourself up, you will be exalted. It says you should give yourself You have to read between the lines, Bobby. Because Jesus did it. And how do we know that that was the right thing to do? Well, because God exalted him, which is very much different than saying, and therefore God will exalt you. But it is a way of saying, here's the sign that you need to know that this is the right way to live your life. Because, you know, the other thing that happens here is, I don't, I'm so curious what you think about this. In verse 10, at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth, might bow and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. So first I just want to, like you, the Christian believer, if that's who you are, if you live your life this way, you you don't end up exalted. You end up bowing to Jesus. So there's a clear distinction, right? But the other thing that's interesting to me is Paul's use of everyone. And then his in heaven, so those who have already, I mean, I think this is the angelic beings probably actually, Mm -hmm. On earth, that is those who are living, and under the earth, that is those who have died or in Sheol, all of those folks are going to end up in the same position, which is bowing and acknowledging Jesus. So humbling yourself and being Christian didn't actually mm-hmm. get you anything beyond what it got in, but beyond what anyone else got. Now, I don't know if that's the right way to read that, but it's certainly like if everyone ends up the same, then hmm. you didn't get a reward. You didn't get a particular reward. You got the same reward as everyone else. That's really interesting. I had not, I hadn't drawn that out before, but it really does, I don't know, seem to to add really important nuance to what I was thinking and saying before. And it's a it's an important caution against reading the story of Jesus as like, you know, if you if you do as Jesus did. I mean, yeah. not, not that Christians think they're gonna be exalted and treated as God, like. I don't think, I don't think anyone goes that far with it. But if you're, if you're doing this for some reward, yeah, that second stanza at least clarifies that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking Mm -hmm. about Jesus. I don't know Christians who think they're going to be treated like God, but I do know lots of Christians who think they're going to be exalted to a status that Mm -hmm. is higher than the status of other humans who -hmm. don't believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it's a, Relatives, yeah, yeah. relative, but yeah. Mm-hmm. This seems to be saying, in fact, everyone's going to end up in in the same position. Now, Amy, I'm so curious about this. This is going to come, I think, a little bit out of left field. But you may know me. You do know me well enough that I think you know that I'm kind of a universalist. That is, I believe that this whole story, the Christian story, the God story, the biblical story is headed toward the salvation of all humankind. Not all Christians believe that. Many Christians believe there's sort of an offer of salvation Mm -hmm. for all humankind. Some 
some take it, some leave it. And so mm-hmm. God, in the end, will not save everyone. I think in the end, God wants to and therefore does save everyone. This passage is one of the ways that I get there. Because of that line that we just read, everyone in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, that is everyone who is alive now, everyone who has ever lived, is going to bow down and confess that Jesus is Lord, which according to many Christian theologies is what one needs to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you can hear where I'm, I think you can hear where I'm going to end up here, which is on the one hand, as a Christian, I really love this theology because it's a way of me saying, I'm not any better than anyone else. Like God's desires for the salvation of all humankind, God achieves that. And so in the end, it's all good. And then I don't have to live my life either in anxiety about people who are not believers or in a sense of superiority that I am a believer. The downside is it has, it requires, it says to get there that people who in this current existence have no interest whatsoever in bowing down and acknowledging Jesus as Lord are going to do that eventually, even Mm -hmm. if it's after death. So I'm curious, such a big question, what you, as someone who is in that latter category, uh, thinks about that way? I mean, so the one question is about a universalizing outcome And the other question is about the means by which this text could get us there, which is to have a post-death confession by everyone who ever has been. Simple questions. Oh, Bobby. (laughs) I mean, my, 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 I guess, straightforward answer is that does still feel like superiority to me. It's just like congratulations, you won't be punished in the afterlife, but you still got it wrong and I got it right. Yeah. You know, like there's no like particular prize for it, but. Yeah. And I will also say like, I can use the word superiority because you you used the word superiority, like that it's a way to, to not feel superiority. Yeah. But I could also use the word truth claim, like. I don't know. I feel like there are these kinds of truth claims in the Hebrew Bible, too. These sort of fantasies that all the nations will come to realize that the God of Israel is the true God and yada, yada, yada. Like, this just, (laughs) and I just yada, yada, the whole. You did. did. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just feel like it is a, when you have a really strong, clear belief that something is really, really true, and also you love other people and humans and you want you want everything to work out. I think that's the way to put those things together. Yeah. Does it feel like a something that affords me particular dignity? No. But I don't I don't know. I think that's just a matter of I think you have to be allowed to have a truth claim. Yeah. And I guess I'd rather that than you imagine me burning in the fires of eternity. <laughs> yeah. I think I have some other friends who imagine me there. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah, I know, and Amy, that, I, that's kind of what I thought you were going to say, and I think that's probably a, a very fair way of getting at that. It's, just, it's not ideal, but it's better than some other options. <laughs> the other thing that you said there that I thought was really important is that the Hebrew scriptures themselves have a similar view, just articulated differently, which is all the nations are going to come to believe that the God of Israel is truly God. This is another way of getting at that. And, you know, where 
in a, if you're trying to have an interfaith conversation, then, then one of the w- ways that you could come out that I think is not a bad way to come out is if we could have a system in which we each had our own belief system in which it turns out all right for the other person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that's far superior to having yeah. belief systems in which it turns out really badly for each other. Mm-hmm. And that maybe there's not a possibility, like within my system, this is what I can say about you, which is, it's not the same thing as we all have the same system or like we all give up our systems and just say, eh. Mm-hmm. But to have a, to think within our own theological traditions about the way we can be as generous as possible to people who are not in our tradition, I think is a pretty good goal. Yeah. Even if it's not maybe, I don't even know quite know what the word is, but. There's tension there. Like there, yeah. there's just some tension and I think that's okay. Yeah. No, I think so too. I agree. All right. So I just want to, I'm going to read the last part of this, just two more verses, which I think will get us back to the idea of how does Paul think we should live this out in community. So picking up in verse 12. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I am away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. So this this is a therefore with what became with, with what came previously. So because Christ did this, therefore mm. you should do that. Yeah. Is there a, can you pull those threads together? I just love I I love the way I love the, the way that you asked the question because okay, the way those threads sort of pull together for me is we have this model of of how this all played out for Jesus. You're not Jesus. Jesus was God. You know, like, Jesus' story is not your story. But, like, and Jesus sort of blew up the model. You know, like, whatever you thought the model of a a good and strong and powerful and meaningful life was has has been exploded. (laughs) Yeah. You know, with this sort of new possibility. So it's more sort of like keeping that in mind— keeping what we've seen in Jesus's life in mind, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. Like what a call to action. Yeah. Like, you know, know before whom you stand. Like take this seriously and, and, and work it out. But it's not, it's not like therefore do what Jesus did. Or therefore, you know, like it's a very, yeah. you know, I feel like Paul kind of ha- hands them a little bit of a mess, like a good mess, yeah. a good holy mess, and then says, you actually have to do, you have to do the next part. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And, you know, what Paul had said previously was have the same attitude that Jesus had, and then gives them this example of the Christ him, and mm-hmm. then says, go work it out. Yeah. And so, so the example is, don't think of yourself more highly than others. Don't regard whatever exalt, exalted status you might have as something to be exploited, but give it up in order to be in community with people and to try to understand the lives of the people who suffer the most, like yeah. even death on a cross. Like, I mean, I don't think you should die on a cross. <laughs> like, don't, don't use your privilege exactly. yeah. <laughs> to protect you from the stuff that 
people are going through. Like, yeah. get down there in the muck and and work it out. I I really love that. And if you sort of, if you can get past yourself and the things that protect you yes. from life, and you truly understand what it's like to be in the position of people who do not have as much status as you have might have, then it's it's actually a lot easier to work it out. This is actually one of the lessons of Mercy Church, uh, which we do more and less successfully depending on the time. But one of the things that we did early on at Mercy Church that I really loved is we, we got people who were middle class like me and people who either were currently or had been homeless together, and they just got to know each other as people. And they sang yeah. songs and prayed prayers and studied the Bible together. And once you start to think like, oh, that person is one of my people. Yeah then you don't think in terms of like the same categories exactly of like, what do I do with my tax dollars? Well, that question comes out a lot differently when you understand someone else. One of the tensions that the Bible Worm Collaborative pointed out in this text, which I think is right, is work out your own salvation. And then in verse 13, God is the one who enables you to want and to live out good purposes. There seems like a tension there between Figure it out, mm. and God's the one who helps you figure it out. Do you have any ways of thinking about that? I'm going to pull a thought from uh, <laughs> a 20th century Jewish thinker named Mordecai yeah. Kaplan, who certainly Paul was not thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> but he uses the word salvation, and not that's not a common word in Jewish parlance, so, so it's you know, distinctive. I guess I just remember it. And he talks about salvation as sort of coming into your fullest expression as a human being, like fulfilling yes. your, your mission as, as a human on earth. And he talks about God as the force that makes for salvation, that sort of allows for salvation, that, that drives us toward that or helps us get there. And I will tell you, he at least doesn't have any kind of supernatural God. Like, it's he wound up founding a denomination called Reconstructionist Judaism, which he didn't really mean to do, but <laughs> it caused yeah. a, a rift in the Jewish community, and so there was a split. But in my mind, the idea that there is some force in the world that we can call God that that propels us toward that sort of yearning and seeking and aspiring to be what we're meant to be, not aspiring to be powerful or aspiring, to, you know, like, yeah. but like aspiring to be like our, our, the fullest expression of ourselves in the world. I, I don't know. I see those things as, as fitting easily together. Not so much yeah. that, that God's like driving the train and you're on the train, but I don't know, but somehow you you need that you need the 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 force, the strength, the you need to be able to tap into God in the world in order to get there. I really love that, Amy, and I appreciate you connecting the word salvation and and how do you think about salvation when that word is invoked in Christian Christian conversation. Often it means how do you ensure that your soul is going to end up in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think that sets us down a difficult path with this text. When you think about it like you're thinking about it, which to me is the way Paul's thinking about it, which is what does it mean? Like we just, we started out by saying 
we are in Christ. And the question is, what does it mean to be fully in Christ? If you could, if you could be fully in Christ, that I think is salvation, both in the current world and then in a world to come. Mm-hmm. And so now we're thinking about what does it mean to be our fullest selves? What does it mean to be fully in Christ? And I also think this is communal, right? So what does it mean for you, church in Philippi, to be fully the church in Philippi? Like work out, what does it mean to be in Christ? And so the goal here is not about where's my soul going to go when I die, but it's going to be about how do I live fully as a Christian and how do I live fully in a Christian community? And Paul just told us what that looks like. Yeah. And then I love what you said about um, God empowers that to happen. Like you can't do it yourself. Like we sort of started out by saying this list of things Paul gives us is like live this way. It's like a really hard list. Right. And it really is true. Yeah. Um, and then so the end of this is then like, but you don't have to do it by yourself. Like God gives you the strength to, to, to work that out. But you but you got to do the work. I, I think that emphasis is, is exactly right. It's, it's all there. It can be done. You've got this well of divine strength to draw on. Well, you gotta, you gotta do the work. All right, Amy. There's, as always, a lot one can say about this text. Yeah. I'm curious as we've sort of dug through it, and we're thinking about how does this text connect to modern life in our communities, how we live today. Where are you drawn? I think I'm, I'm feeling most drawn to sort of the way two parts of our conversation might fit together. And one of them was, you know, we touched a little bit on the idea that it's a dangerous thing to suggest that what we all need to do is make ourselves smaller than we are. Yeah. But instead, we might think about it as like holding things loosely, like keeping keeping our palms open with what we have and what we don't have. I, the, the, what I've seen from the world so far in my 40-something years it actually gets harder to do that the more stuff you have. Yeah. You know, and this is this is not a this is not an unfamiliar idea biblically, but that you know, once you have attained a certain like stability in your life, financial stability or or you know, power or whatnot, there's a very powerful fear of losing it. Like we even though people who don't have it often you know, don't don't feel that same level of fear or agitation about yeah. it. And I think that really holds us back from what I would call salvation. Like if you're afraid of anything coming coming back out of your hands, like if you're afraid of change in your status and you're afraid, I don't know, I don't know. I just I picture like just grasping onto things and the way that it it forces you to to shut everything else down. Like it be, it yeah. really becomes like the only thing is we're maintaining. The goal is for us to maintain what we are. And it's a, it's a, it's a scary, it's a scary way to live in the world. And it's not a generous way to live in the world. And it's, I don't know, it's not a generative way to live in the world. And I really think it, I, I think it gets harder the more, the more stability you attain over life. Yeah. The, the more uh, you forget that you can live without it. So yeah, that's that's. I mean, it, I feel like I'm more coming out of this with like that image in my mind of open open palms yeah. than um, than anything else. I love that, Amy, and I think my own processing of this text is along really similar lines. 
And you know, this text is fundamentally about Jesus's incarnation among people as a slave who is executed. And the status, the the exalted status that Jesus had to give up in order to live that incarnation out. Mm -hmm. And when Paul then says, have the same attitude, have the same mind that Christ had, to me, that goes exactly to that point of we need to figure out the points at which we are trying to hang on to exaltation, right? And the ways in which when the world sort of sorts people out in these inauthentic ways about who is more important than others, we need to figure out where we are in that hierarchy and we need to devoid ourselves of those things as best we can in order to be present among people whose experience of life is very different than our own so that we can understand them and they can understand us and we can have the same mind. Because if you don't know what somebody else is going through, if they don't, if you don't know what life is like for people, you can't be of the same mind as them. You just, you're, you're going to protect your own interests. Right. So learning to be outside of your own interests and to take other people's interests as your own, I think is exactly what this passage is about. And in therein, lies the attitude of Christ and therein lies community becoming more like Christ and therein um, lies salvation. I also think that way of thinking about it addresses a little bit this issue of there are some people who don't need to humble themselves. Mm -hmm. Because if what you're doing is figuring out the ways in which you are inauthentically exalted and giving those up, Mm -hmm. then people who are not inauthentically exalted Mm don't have anything to give up. Right. And so th- this is saying the ways that the world privileges you over other people, you need to give that up. If the world does not privilege you over other people, right. then, you right. know, that doesn't, it's not a step. Right. I don't right. know that that solves that problem, but it at least kind of gets us to a different place with it. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that's really helpful. And I think it's just really, I think it's just really helpful for us as we're reading this text that is so rich to to keep in mind people in different different relative positions of power in the world. Yeah, I think that's right. And the important, like I keep coming back to the importance of incarnation. Our bodies need to be with people who are positioned differently than us in the world so that we can form authentic yeah. community with them. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Amy, next time is our Pentecost episode. We're going to be back in Acts chapter 2. And then the fourth chapter of Philippians. So I'll and look forward to talking gonna with you. You're going to wear your red pants, right? Oh, yeah, tongue-colored pants. I don't forgot about forget. that. I don't know if I have tongue-colored pants. Well, you're going to go but, shopping then. Or else I need to dye my tongue, like, blue. <laughs> <laughs> That's very creative. Yeah. Good. All right, Amy. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. 
A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time for our Pentecost episode, and we'll be reading Acts 2, 1-21 and Philippians 4, 4-7. Until then, keep on digging.